Welcome to the Hospice Huddle Podcast. This podcast is about helping clinicians better understand hospice care and how we can better serve patients with terminal illnesses. We hope the information in this podcast makes you a better advocate of hospice care. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Katherine Jacobs, and I am one of the key account liaisons for Agape Care South Carolina. I've met many of you and hope to meet more. Um, thank you all for joining joining us this morning. We're kicking off our six-week series, um, Hospice Huddles, and today we're going to be focusing on hospice indicators, um, diagnosis versus prognosis. We, uh, Our hope is that we are able to bring information that is useful and meaningful for your everyday practice. Um, and I want to introduce uh, one of our speakers today is Rochelle Ray, and she is the Director of Operations in the Columbia branch for Agape Care. Um, she's been a nurse for 17 years and started in a hospital. She shared with me that she started on a med surge floor, spent about six years in oncology, and she's been with hospice for about eight years now. Um, she developed a love for hospice and floating to the hospice floor in the hospital setting and found that she could really connect with the patients and care for their families and, as a unit. And she's very passionate about hospice, and I think you'll find that as she speaks. You'll hear that passion in her. Um, Trent Prater is with us also. Most of you know him. Um, he is, is RN at MSN. He's the vice president president of hospice and palliative care. Um, he has um, over year, over 21 years of clinical and leadership experience, ranging from critical care to hospice. In um, his role as the vice president at South Carolina House Calls, his areas of focus are educating providers on hospice and palliative care, strengthening relationships with hospice and acute care partners and the community, and reporting hospice and palliative care data to the staff and leadership. Um, thank you all for joining and helping out with this. Um, Rochelle, I'm going to give it to you. Okay, good morning, everybody. I hope everyone is doing well. Oops, sorry, I went a little bit too fast. Uh, I'm going to open the presentation with a quote. Um, if any of you out there are Dr. Phil fans, you've probably heard him say it a thousand times. But one of the things that we often find ourselves going back to in hospice is the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Um, and so when we're trying to do what we call in the hospice world, paint the picture, we're trying to document and paint a picture that you can actually envision on paper. And where we start is we start with the last six months. When I'm going to do a hospice admission, I will ask the family, you know, what has changed with your loved one since, you know, June or July or whenever it was. Um, and I'm looking to pick up on some subtle hints, some signs of decline in the patient's overall clinical status. So when we talk about the overall decline in clinical status, one of the things that we're looking for is progression of disease via worsening status, symptoms, signs, and laboratory results. What does that mean for a clinician? We're looking for refractory or recurring infections. We're looking for weight loss, decreasing albumin, or dysphagia that has led to aspiration. 
We're also looking for some unmanaged symptoms. Does this patient have um, uncontrolled nausea, vomiting? Um, is there dyspnea persisting despite treatment? Do we have diarrhea? Um, are we having progressive or uncontrolled pain that we're prescribing stronger or more frequent medications for that are just not controlled? Some of the signs that we look for uh, is hypotension, um, edema, progressive weakness, a change in their mental status. Some of the lab results we tend to focus on are worsening O2 levels, liver function studies, tumor markers, um, volatile sodium and potassiums, and pretty much any laboratory value. If it's worsening, we're using that to consider their appropriateness for hospice. It's fast. We're also looking for progressive disease leading to a decrease in their overall KPS or PPS. Um, for our Alzheimer's patients, we're looking for a decline in their FAST scale. One of the things that's important to know is that the FAST scale was created for Alzheimer's patients only. It does not apply to all the other cognitive disorders or dementias that may be associated with other um, disease processes. So in those cases, we'll use the mini metal status exam where we can say six months ago, here was their MMS e-score and now here's where we are today as a um, hard data for indicating decline. We're also looking for them requiring assistance with ADL. Sometimes these are your folks that um, um, maybe was a community patient and then they moved into assisted living and now they're in memory care and it's only been four months. That's a big huge change uh, for that patient as far as the level of assistance they're requiring on a day-to-day. We're looking for worsening refractory stage three to four pressure ulcers despite wound care. Um, you've got someone on home health that despite everything they're doing and everything you're doing, they have some of these other criteria and also those wounds are just not healing. Another thing we're looking for is increased healthcare utilization. Your patients that are going to the ER a lot, the hospital a lot, they're requesting um, telehealth visits in addition to what you're already providing or asking you to come out more often, or they're calling the call center a lot. Um, those are kind of the things that we are looking for when we're talking about um, going back to the signs of decline in the patient's clinical status. One of the things I wanted to go over really quickly is diagnosis versus prognosis. So in a moment, I'm going to go into some of our kind of uh, more um, uh, common diagnoses that we see. Now, there's pretty much a really long list that I couldn't even put together if I wanted to of acceptable primary hospice diagnosis, but in general, most of them will kind of fit into certain categories. Um, however, diagnosis does not equal prognosis. Uh, for example, um, if someone has COVID, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to die. Um, and so a patient may have one of these hospice diagnoses that I'm going to go into a little further. But in, a, in addition to the diagnosis, we also need a prognosis. We need that clinical decline that I was just talking about. Um, hospice is indicated for a diagnosis when the health status is declining and if it continues to go the way that it's going, it would result in the patient having six months or less to live. Now, none of us have um, uh, crystal balls. There are times we have patients who are just tanking. Uh, you get hospice involved and a few months later they stabilize. I mean, that happens. 
Um, but a lot of times you're seeing an indication that they're declining and then, um, you know, they tend to go on that train, but occasionally they do bounce back. So there's just this little chart here that um, separates the difference between diagnosis versus prognosis. Um, so I think that's important to note. This thing double goes through. Okay, so hospice markers, what are some of the main categories that we use? Um, one of them is ALS. Uh, it used to be one that we didn't see often, but right now we currently have, well, we just lost one, but we had three patients on our service with ALS. So that one and HIV tend to be ones that we see sort of in cycles. Um, cancer, um, the other category is CVA, stroke or coma. Our heart disease, CHFers. Our lung disease and COPDers. Um, End-stage liver and kidney disease. Um, we do have some folks, we have a patient currently with um, MS, um, muscular dystrophy, Alzheimer's and other dementias and Parkinson's disease. Those are kind of our main uh, categories. I know that at one point in time we had flip books, but I also have a really good um, guideline for hospice eligibility that's more like in book form that I can also send to um, you, Trent, if you want to distribute it to them along with the slides from the show. It goes into um, malnutrition, which is kind of one of those ones that we are seeing more and more now, uh, protein calorie malnutrition and what the criteria for that is. Um, at times you have patients that have a little bit of everything, but none of it quite meets hospice criteria, but we can use protein calorie malnutrition as a primary at times um, to get them the hospice service they desperately need. Um, the first diagnosis is ALS, and what we're looking for with these ALS patients is that um, their breathing capacity has been se severely impacted, or we're looking at a rapid disease progression with a severe nutritional impairment or a life-threatening complication. Um, ALS kind of tends to go one of two ways, um, and a lot of times their uh, progression is very rapid at the end. So if you have someone that's been stable for a while and all of a sudden, um, you know, they're having a huge decline in, in their uh dyspnea or it's worsening, then this might be a patient that would be appropriate for hospice. Next one is cancer. Um, cancer is kind of a pretty straightforward one as far as the hospice criteria. Um, it really only requires that the patient has cancer that has spread, they have a PPS of 70 or less, and that they are either refusing further therapy or they just are not a candidate. It's literally just those three things. It's one of the easiest ones. Um, and so uh, in cancer patients, we often find that they don't want to give up until the end. You know, there's uh, first line, second line, third line. Then you've got your um, investigational therapies and a lot of patients and families uh, want to keep trying everything that they can possible. And so rarely do we ever get someone when they're at a PPS of 70%. We usually get involved at the end and in their very last days um, but some folks absolutely just don't even want to even get chemotherapy so if you have someone that's still pretty functional um, but has cancer and doesn't want treatment you know they they would be a candidate for hospice as long as they have a pps of 70 percent or less the next category is um, cva stroke or coma 
Um, when you get the copy of the guidelines for hospice eligibility, you'll see there's a lot more um, information, but I didn't want to get too bogged down in, in all of that. I kind of want to give you a brief overview. Um, for our CVA or stroke patients, the main things we're looking for is that they have a PPS of 40% or less and that they have a poor nutritional status and that's due to their inability to maintain a sufficient fluid and calorie intake. Usually that's related to dysphagia um, or you know some other um, reason, but we're looking for someone that is losing weight or has significantly um, decreased in the amount of food that they're able to take in or they can't drink liquids. Um, they're on thickened liquids, those kind of things is what we're looking for. Next is your heart disease or your CHF patients. What we're looking for here is poor response to optimal treatment with diuretics, vasodilators, or ACE inhibitors. These are your folks that have already been on treatment for a long time. You've got everything in play that you could have in play. You've adjusted everything and their symptoms are just persisting despite anything that you are doing. Um, these patients also would um, may have angina at rest that is resistant to nitrate therapy and they're just not a candidate for their invas any invasive procedures or any kind of treatments based on their overall um, functional level. And we're looking for a New York Heart Association class four. Um, and in that guideline for hospice eligibility is also a copy of all these scales, just in case you're not familiar with that. Um, but a New York Heart Association four is a patient with cardiac disease that has resulted in the inability to carry on any physical activity without discomfort. Um, and if they do do any kind of physical activity, the discomfort is increased. Next would be our lung disease or COPD patients. With these folks, we're looking for the disab disabling dyspnea at rest. These are those folks that you're sitting down talking to and they get short of breath just talking to you or they're unable to complete their meals because they just get so tired from just working to breathe. Um, they're having a poor response to the bronchodilators. It's just not helping anymore and maybe it helps a little, but they're still sitting there short of breath at rest. They have a decrease in their functional capacity where they used to be able to get up and, you know, prepare their meals or get up and walk to the bathroom. And now they're pretty much either laying down or they're in their chair because they just can't tolerate the activity to take care of themselves. These folks, you're typically seeing um, a progression of the disease resulting in increased um, either visits on your end or um, increased visits to their pulmonologist if they have one, ER visits, hospitalizations. Um, you know, if you can't breathe, it's an emergency. So you're usually seeing an increase in, in the use of other healthcare providers. One of the other things we're looking for is a pulse ox at rest of 88% or less. Next is Alzheimer's. Um, Alzheimer's patients should have a fast scale of seven or beyond. Uh, the fast scale is meant to be used um, sequentially. You can't skip a step. They have to have every one of the numbers before you can get to a 7A. And so, um, this person should be incontinent. Um, they should need assistance with their ADLs. Um, and they also should have their ability to speak 
limited to being approximately half a dozen intelligible different words or fewer in the course of an average day or the course of an average interview. So if this patient can really talk to you, um, knows where they are, they may not be appropriate for hospice under the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Now there may be something else, um, but these patients typically, you know, can't talk very much. These are bedbound patients um, or a, a sharp decline in their ability to be able to um, ambulate or requiring a lot of assistance. And they have to be um, both bowel and bladder incontinent. Uh, they're also looking for one of the following in the last 12 months, an aspiration pneumonia, a pyelonephritis or an upper UTI, septicemia, uh, pressure ulcers, either having multiple and or stage three or fours, uh, fever that is recurring despite antibiotics, and the inability to maintain sufficient fluid caloric intake. Um, and that's usually what we're seeing in the end stage Alzheimer's patients. They just don't want to eat or they'll only eat sweets. Maybe they're living off just in shores, um, or maybe they have some swallowing difficulties or something like that that's preventing them from getting the amount of nutrition they truly do need. Our next category is your chronic renal failure patients. Um, the first criteria is that they're not seeking dialysis or a transplant. And the other criteria is having a creatinine clearance of um, less than 10 cc's a minute or 15 cc's a minute for diabetics or a serum creatinine greater than eight or greater than six for diabetics. Um, Non-hospice diagnoses. So a lot of times when we're getting referrals um, here at Agape, um, we are seeing um, the diagnosis being things that we really can't use. Uh, we want you to be specific about what you think is causing the decline. Now they may have weakness, they may have failure to thrive, they may have other signs and symptoms, but those are not high hospice diagnoses. So what is causing that weakness? What is causing the decline? What is causing them to fail to thrive? Um, we can't use those as primary hospice diagnoses. And if you look for the root of the cause and put that on there, it will also kind of guide the admitting nurse and knowing what she is looking for. So we know which set of criteria we're going in to evaluate that patient as appropriate for. Um, if you don't know or you're really confused, um, you know, I definitely would hope that um, you would have the phone number um, of your clinical supervisor in your area. Um, if you're in Columbia, you can always call me and I'm happy to kind of talk through anything with you to help you sort of figure it out. Um, but as much as possible, try to be more specific with the diagnosis when you're sending over these referrals so we kind of know what we're looking for or what you're seeing or what you think is causing the decline. Okay. So let's play a game, not operation, because obviously we can't do that virtually. Um, but anyone out there that's a provider, who is your sickest patient? And you don't have to mention a name, but think of someone that is your sickest patient that calls all the time. Um, does anyone have an example that we could review and discuss? Or maybe someone that you've referred recently to hospice? So this is April. I don't have a particular patient in mind, but I would like to understand better dialysis patients. So I've, I've run across a couple of 
dialysis patients that have, a, you know, several major comorbidities and could benefit from hospice, but they're still dialysis patients. Can you elaborate or explain a little bit about how that works with hospice? Sure. So the Medicare guidelines states that um, not only do we have to identify a primary diagnosis, which is the which is the goal to try to figure out the criteria, we also have to include um, as hospice covered anything that is relating to that patient's terminality or their prognosis. So even if you have a patient that maybe had kidney disease prior to, and actually you know now they have really bad Alzheimer's. Um, you would be very hard pressed to convince Medicare or anyone else that the fact that that person has renal failure so bad they're on dialysis that that is not contributing to their overall prognosis. And so you would have to include that as part of what should be covered by hospice. And so that's why a lot of times we cannot take those patients or won't take them is because Medicare pretty much has been very clear that if someone's on dialysis, that's definitely contributing to their terminality and we should be paying for it. And as you know, that's super expensive. Um, so it really wouldn't be practical, even if that's maybe not their primary diagnosis, but it wouldn't be practical to have a patient that's on dialysis on hospice for that reason. Rochelle, if I might, I want to, while maybe some providers on the call are are thinking of some cases. I I would love to just um, kind of follow up on a couple things you said, if if you don't mind. Sure. And um, one of those, and this is, and maybe we'll attack this kind of in reverse instead of thinking uh, while the providers are thinking of cases that are um, that are hospice appropriate. I want to want to go back to one of the slides that you mentioned. You don't have to reverse the slide, but it was the slide that uh, the title was non-hospice diagnoses. And one of the things I want to mention, and maybe deconstructing this in reverse are patients that aren't appropriate. And I mentioned this because I'm starting to see uh, more referrals that are coming in with the ICD um, R68.89, the other generalized symptoms. Yes. And I know I've talked with Debbie about this and Teresa Eunice, and it's um, and that's a really difficult generalized um, you know, ICD code to try to to try to get someone on hospice. So you mentioned a little bit, but I just wanted to kind of reinforce that to to the providers. That code is really generalized. Something's causing that, and so as with the failure to thrive um, and um, things like that, we want to kind of dig a layer or two deeper to find out what's causing you know the failure to thrive, what's causing that generalized decline. And so I just wanted to, to remind providers that, that that specific one I'm seeing used more frequently, R68.89, and it's just really difficult for hospice to, to make the case based on that. So just be real specific. Um, uh, the other thing I want to just mention, you, you've mentioned through your PowerPoint today some just wonderful um, tidbits about uh, different disease processes. So I want to take just a minute to remind our providers that we have um, everything that you mentioned and and much more. We have documents to support all of that on our Teams page. The Teams page I created, it's called Palliative Care. And so I have the hospice markers page on there, um, all of the scales. The, um, the only one I don't have on there is the mini mental status, and I can add that by the end of the day. But the FAST, the New York Heart, all those things. So providers on the call, if you've been through the intensive training over the last six months, you've heard those things. And I just want to remind you, we have all of those resources, including the presentation on painting the picture of terminal illness, all those things on our Teams page. You also had mentioned labs. 
And now correct me if I'm wrong on this, but one of the things that that um, I think I was talking to Yara Boyder about this not too long ago is, of course, our providers, you guys can order, you can order labs and you're doing that labs and, and tests and diagnostics all day long on your patients. Uh, but one of the things I want to impress on you, if you're ordering those things for a hospice patient, um, we contract with Mako and we contract with Dynamic Mobile Imaging, but but our hospice partner doesn't contract with those. So I think it's probably best practice, and Rochelle, you let me know if this is in, uh, incorrect, is for if we, if you want to order a test or a lab on a patient, con reach out to hospice first. Um, we may decide not to do it, but even if you do order those, it can be done through the, our hospice partners' contracted services, so they're not paying you know these these exorbitant rates. Is that is that correct, Rochelle? Correct, correct. Yeah. And I think that just, um, you know, kind of when we're talking about labs and we're talking about it in relationship to hospice appropriateness, you know, kind of as you're following these people and you're starting to see them decline, you know, one of the things you're going to want to do, especially if you're really not sure what the cause of it is, is to just go ahead and run some labs and see if you can kind of narrow it down. It helps us a whole lot when we've got a family or a patient in front of us that desperately needs help and we want to help them to help narrow down what the cause of it is. We love an albumin. Um, and so, you know, as you're starting to see your patients decline, maybe they're not quite hospice appropriate yet, but running some labs so that we can go back and show that over the last year, here's what we've had. Um, and as far as the, you know, um, hospice diagnosis goes, I don't expect y'all to be expert coders to know the exact one, but if you just point us in the right general area, because a lot of times what I'll see on the referral order is I'll see that generalized diagnosis, but then when I get to the second page, or third page, whatever page it is, I'll see a list of about 30 diagnoses, and one of those from that list is probably what needs to be there to point us in the right direction. Um, but it just gives us an idea more so um, of what you're thinking is the major area of decline. So maybe the person has heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease. I mean, some of these folks have a whole range of them. But what you're mostly seeing is you're seeing the edema, the shortness of breath, and you're really thinking it's cardiac related. So just use that one instead so we know that that's where your thought process is. I always have trained my nurses that when you are looking at a hospice appropriate patient that desperately needs help, don't get too hung up in the diagnosis world. We can, you know, consult our medical directors and get creative. But when you see someone that desperately needs help, sometimes we do have to think outside of the box for diagnoses. But mostly I just want you guys to know that your chronic patients that you're seeing that have these diagnoses what exactly makes that diagnosis now move to a prognosis of six months or less and needing hospice intervention. So I hope that makes sense. It absolutely does. And for those of you who have been through our intensives, you know, one of the slides that we actually spend quite a, quite a few minutes talking about is that prognosis versus diagnosis. And, and, it, and it's used to be previously that uh, we've focused a lot on the diagnosis, but we're just, Medicare is more globally thinking now, as Rochelle said, especially in terms of things like um, like renal disease, 
it's really hard to make the case that that is not somehow affecting the patient's care. So as, as Medicare and our payers move towards a, you know, you uh, the hospice is responsible to cover everything because everything is interrelated. It's just um, important to think about that. In, in thinking of that interrelatedness, it's really the prognosis uh, more than a specific diagnosis. Um, and so I would say if you, you know, just any patient that you have, just think about that, think globally about about their prognosis. And, and hospice can really help you out. Our hospice partners, your local leaders, your local nurses, you know, this is what they do every day and they can really help you sort of, as well as me, uh, can help you navigate those waters to, to get the right diagnosis in there, right, you know, paint, painting the correct picture for admission. Um, hey, this is Andy. I just jumped on. Rochelle, you're doing a wonderful job. One of the things about the dialysis patients that's so hard, and I know it's hard to talk about, you know, because we don't really want to talk about so much the money and the expense, but you know, a lot of these dialysis patients do need our help, and we we do have diagnosis we need to pick them up for, and we have went around and around, and there's been a few that we've been able to, you know, actually pick up. The problem with this is you hear a lot of these families say, oh, you know, we, we don't want to treat their cancer, but if we take them off of their dialysis, they're going to die. And, you know, the thing that I hear with that is dialysis is an aggressive form of treatment. So one thing we need to be able to do is to discuss with these families, you know, you don't want to treat one terminal illness, but you're treating another one aggressively. So we have to be able to open up these conversations of why you're wanting to continue to treat one terminal illness aggressively and not treat the other. Um, and I think that's one of the key issues as, you know, providers, nurses, um, everyone to be on the same page that we're continuing to say, you know, let's treat this one aggressively and not the other. And I think a lot of families do not understand that concept. Um, and that will help us a lot in the dialysis realm also. And I know we have a lot of, or we have several of our nurses in the, in the Center for Telehealth on the call today. And I'm so thankful for that. And so, and, you know, you guys are looking at it a little differently from a provider's point of view, because because you're like me, you're not a provider. So I think when, when and your role is relatively new, but just for you, and for your team, as you're looking through charts and creating ticklers uh, for future visits, use those uh, the hospice markers that Rochelle was mentioning, and and that um, we have on our micro on our teams page, the palliative page. And when you see patients that have had visits to the ER or have had hospitalizations or have you know stage three or fours, they have functional decline. They have increasing dysphagia. Um, their labs are you know our providers have ordered labs and those are showing decline. Those are all. Uh, they're they're not dispositive. That may not be the only thing that makes the person appropriate, but th those are just indicators. So use those as as like clues because your role is certainly your role is almost like kind of an investigator, and that could be uh, you know just uh, putting in that visit for hospice or shooting a message to me or to the provider, you know, just to say hey, what do you think about hospice? Um, you know, as a potential order for this patient. So. There are definitely wonderful opportunities for our nurses in the Center for Telehealth for, for this as well to recognize the appropriateness of a patient. Hospice is the right option when your patients are more focused on comfort than they are curing things. You know, when you have your patients who 
Um, every time they have a little symptom, they want to go get a test or they want to go to the hospital or, you know, they want to figure out what's causing it. And when they're more focused on curing um, than they are comfort, they may not be, they may be hospice appropriate, but they may, may not be hospice minded. Um, and so it's not always about the criteria. It's also about a philosophy and them being hospice minded and ready for hospice. You know, folks that you hear say, um, you know, that they don't ever want to go back to the hospital or they don't want to go to the hospital at all. Um, they just want to stay home. Um, any of your patients that seem to be just giving up physically and emotionally, um, those would be um, patients who are indicating that hospice is the right option for them versus either a home health or a more aggressive um, treatment option. Now we're at questions and answers. Anyone have any questions, comments about anything that was presented? Good morning. This is Cindy. I'm one of the telehealth RNs. So I have a question from experience and from reviewing the provider charts that a lot of patients are completely appropriate for hospice and the providers are doing a good job discussing hospice with them. But some of these families the, they're still working, and so they can't give up their CLTC hours for people that are caring for their family members while they're working. So any suggestions for that kind of situation? So one of the biggest obstacles we do have in hospice is CLTC. Um, and so when a person is getting CLTC, a lot of times those families don't want to give up those CLTC hours because they absolutely need them to, like you said, maintain their job and survive. And so, you know, um, that is one of our biggest barriers in hospice. Now, at times, um, if they're not receiving a lot of hours, less than 20, sometimes there are some things that we can do on our end, um, but that's kind of on a case-by-case, site-by-site basis. But a lot of these folks are getting 40 we had one the other day that's getting 49 hours of CLTC. So a lot of times when we are not admitting patients that are referred by SC House Coles, it's for one of two things. Either they don't want to come off of CLTC, they don't want to come off of home health, um, or they're just not hospice-minded, but they're pro-appropriate but they're just wanting to still go to all their different doctors. They're wanting to still go to the hospital if something were to happen. Um, and so, you know, those folks might be appropriate, but they're just not hospice minded. Um, and so sometimes that's when you can loop in your key account liaison with someone that you know desperately probably needs hospice, but isn't hospice minded see if they can do some education with the family and kind of explain to them some of the benefits. I think some folks um, still have some myths and misconceptions about hospice. I spoke to someone maybe about two weeks ago that was actually a, a referral from y'all. And um, I called the daughter and I said, you know, do you have any experiences with hospice? You know, have you, you know, what do you know about hospice? And she said, actually, I Googled it last night. And she said, and I thought that hospice for was for your last days. And she said, and I looked it up 
And I discovered that, you know, you guys can be so much benefit to these families in the last six months of their life. And she said, you know, I, I didn't know that. And so she Googled it. But there are a lot of people walking around with misconceptions and myths about hospice, about when it's appropriate, um, when what we're going to do. Some folks think we're just going to put mom on some morphine and, you know, um, and then that's going to be the end of it. Um, and so, you know, I think we're still fighting a lot of these misconceptions, but CLTC is definitely a big barrier for um, providing those services to patients that desperately need hospice because they have to choose between a caregiver and us because we really can't, we are a support. We're not caregivers um, and we do have nurses and we do have aides and we do have social workers and we do have chaplains, but it's not like someone that's coming in 50 hours a week to sit with the patient so that person can go to work. So that, that one is kind of complicated. I know I really didn't give you a straight answer, um, but that is definitely one of our barriers. If I could just piggyback on that real quick too, you know, for those, for, for our uh, providers who are referring, um, you know, those, those uh, patients that we refer or order hospice for, and uh, I am looking at these, I'm looking at every referral and I work with hospice every, really every day on this with, with our hospice partner, with Agape Care. And for those folks who um, we put the order in for and an evaluation is done and they're, they decline hospice. That is, and I come back and, and I think to myself, well, if we had a good conversation with them and we put the order in, why are they declining? They should be on board. So it really makes me think about the um, the huddle that's upcoming on February 11th, having that hospice conversation. I hope that we have a really good turnout so we can talk about the importance of the serious illness conversation and really um, our providers having that conversation with patient and family so that what we're doing honestly is teeing it up for hospice to just knock it off, you know, out of the park when they come in. Um, and then um, I, if you don't mind, I'm going to give Catherine just a minute to, to maybe unmute. You, well, you mentioned CLTC and we talk about that honestly every day, if not certainly weekly. And it is really probably one of the greatest challenges in this state. Um, and I think it's it's just a travesty that people are denied the benefit of hospice because of that. And families have to choose uh, between the, the benefit, and it is a benefit that CLTC provides, but against what I believe is completely separate um, and not a duplication of services for, for hospice. But, but Catherine shared a, a really a beautiful and touching story um, with me yesterday, and, and it is a success story, and we need to highlight these stories. And, it, and it's, a, it's a wonderful story about hospice, our hospice, and how our two companies worked together to admit a patient at the end while they were started to transition, but had been on CLTC. And Catherine, if you're, if you're still on, would you just take two or three minutes to tell us about that story? It was so touching. Absolutely, yes. So, um, Cindy, I agree with you and I agree with Trent and I think we all are in agreement that CLTC is a barrier for hospice that we don't believe should be, but it, you know, there, it is what it is right now. But when I spoke to this particular family, um, I got a referral in December, actually, on this patient and I spoke to the family, the daughter, and she explained to me they were getting... 40 odd hours of CLTC a week. She had things she had to do through the day. She still worked part-time and had a lot of errands to run. She had a life, you know, that she was still very involved in and active. So she could not devote her time to her stay at home and take care of mom. And I, after having quite a long conversation, learned that this lady was um, about to have a mile, milestone birthday and 
they wanted to get to that, but also um, in talking and getting to know her and her getting to know me, um, I learned that, uh, or, or, or let me say, I, ex- I talked to her about, you know, eventually, as we know, that, that mom's going to continue to decline, and it's going to come a point when the clinical oversight and support from hospice is going to be more important than those hours from CLTC. And I, I know you're not there now, but that is going to ha- come to that point. And when it does, you call me. And so I wasn't pushing her to make the choice at that moment. It wasn't, there wasn't really a choice for her to make. She really needed those hours and I understood it. So I agreed with her that now wasn't the time for her, but that it will, I just kind of guided her to the point to understand that it's going to happen. There will come a point where the hours are less important to you because you're not going to want to leave your mom. And then Sure enough, mid-January, just uh, last week, in the last week, I think it was, she called me out of the blue and said, um, I, I believe mom is beginning to transition and we need you now. So as it turned out, and this is a, a, a beautiful story of a great partnership between us because, so I immediately called the clinical supervisor, had the nurse out there in less than an hour. Um, as the nurse is en route, I learned that this patient needs a face-to-face. So um, we coordinated with, I believe Victoria got involved, certainly um, the nurse practitioner did as well, and we made that happen and got that patient admitted. Now, um, she did pass within two to three hours after we admitted her. Um, So then yesterday morning, I actually got a phone call from the daughter who told me that um, she just had to reach in such a short amount of time and how much she appreciated us, the kindness, the compassion, um, the gentleness that the nurse showed in just the postmortem care, um, taking care of her mom and, and helping her that, you know, she talked about phone calls that she did not have to make and things that she did not have to address because we took care of it for her. Um, and she shared with me that that particular um, she was, the patient was on home health with Kindred and Kindred had talked to them about we can just admit you to hospice with us. And she was like, absolutely not. I've talked to Catherine in the past. We, and I'm going to call her. And so we were able to show up for them in a big way at at the most important time um, and help her through as her mom passed away. And she was eternally grateful. She just said, there are no words that I can say, but thank you. So Certainly uplifting to me, not, you know, it would have been great if we could have gotten in way sooner, but that was not what was good for her at that time. And so I had to accept that and just kind of let her know, well, not all is lost. You call us when you need us. We are here on standby ready. And so I would say, if you're having conversations with families that have CLTC and they're facing that same dilemma, that isn't the end all. Just make sure that they know that there will come a point when you're not going to want to leave mom anyway. And when that happens, let us know and we will be there. I hope that helps, Cindy. Does that? Yeah, that's a great point. Thank you. I appreciate that, Catherine. Absolutely. Does anybody else have questions? Any, has anybody thought of any patients that, that have kept them up at night? Ones that they know are going to the hospital repeatedly, um, but really not getting anywhere? Nobody? Okay. Well, I can't thank you all enough for joining us today and um, 
taking the time to improve your practice. Um, thank you, Trent, for partnering with us in this endeavor. And thank you so much, Rochelle, for sharing your expertise. Um, next week, please everybody know that next week our discussion will be focused on face-to-face -face documentation. So hopefully we'll have a good turnout. I know that I've gotten personally a lot of questions from providers specific to face-to-face. -face. So um, hope everybody can take a moment to join us next week, next Thursday at 10, and we'll be talking about face-to-face -face documentation. All right. Thank you. Hey, I just want to remind everyone, uh, Catherine, thank you so much for, for teeing up next uh, next Thursday's face-to-face -face conversation. I'm really looking forward to that. I want to thank you, Catherine. Rochelle, I want to thank you. Uh, you did a great job today. Your presentation was phenomenal. And uh, this is just it's such a stellar partnership. And I'm just thankful to, to have the opportunity to work with you guys. Thank you as thank well. You so Everybody be safe and stay well. And we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to the Hospice Huddle podcast. This podcast is produced in partnership with Agape Care Hospice and South Carolina House Calls. For more information, visit agapecaregroup.com. And for SC House Calls, please visit schousecalls.com. Thanks for listening.